0: Hello and welcome to this Hardwick podcast. My name is Colm Nugent and along with my colleague Charles Baggett QC, in this podcast we'll be discussing the topic of the very recent decision of Master Davison in mustard against flour, which was a decision handed down on the 11th of October of 2019. You can find details of that case and any other matters we refer to in in the podcast on the Hardwick website. So let's
1: begin, Charles, with discussing what the case was about. What was it about? So this was... One of the line of subtle brain injury cases, that's claimed by a claimant that a relatively innocuous car accident has produced a minor brain injury, but one with significant consequences and a dispute about the degree of brain injury she has suffered between the claimants and defendants' experts. The real issue here is about something that's been bubbling away in the background for some years which is not covert recording of claimants by defendants but covert recording by claimants of medical examinations. So they go along to an examination with the other side's expert and they covertly record that with a view to then potentially challenging what's in the expert's report based on producing a transcript of the conversation between expert and patient.
0: It seems looking at the decision that's there was a suggestion that the claimant solicitors in this particular instance recommended to all his clients to record the expert's examination. And that seems to have influenced the way the defendant experts conducted the examination themselves.
1: I think so, but I mean, how did the recording come about in this case? Well, it seems, um, looking at the uh, information contained in the fairly lengthy judgment, that's
0: um, there was some indication from the def- claimants' solicitors to their own client that um, that's something that she ought to do. And she did it, in some instances, asking the expert up front if he or she would mind. And in some instances, I think three instances, that she did it covertly, not telling the expert that that was going to happen at all. I think in one instance... Uh, The expert agreed in part but didn't agree that the testing should be recorded but nonetheless the claimant decided to record the entire thing although I think she
1: suggested that that was all a bit of a mistake. Yes, well that was my impression but the recording was there nevertheless and and that aspect gave rise to a particular complication because I think the reason that the... Neuropsychologists didn't want that part of the examination recorded was because of intellectual property rights in the testing process.
0: Well, I think it's fair to say that um, the objections from the experts who were covertly recorded were fairly uh, significant and done in fairly um, stringent terms. I think they even got their professional bodies involved. Um, they were clearly very upset at the recordings having been made. They were clearly very upset that the recordings included other matters, which, uh, including matters in the waiting room. Um, and I think one of the objections taken by the defendant
1: was that the, defend- the recordings themselves were unlawful. Correct. And one thing that struck me was it caused the defendant's experts to use a very little known procedure where an expert can contact the court themselves for directions of their own motion rather than going through the particular party. And the master certainly, having asked around, indicated that that's something that had virtually never been done before the Queen's bench Masters, But they felt strongly enough about it to want to do that in this case. So one of the issues, of course, the first issue to be decided in terms of the
0: covert recordings is whether in fact the evidence was admissible at all. Do you think the judge could have ruled it inadmissible if he'd wanted to?
1: I think it was very difficult because the submissions, and I think it's a point the master touched on, had the submissions gone in the favour of the defendant it could have somewhat backfired because the effect the master certainly felt would be to rule out covert recordings by defendants, normally by surveillance with images as well as sound recordings of claimants in injury cases. So you could end up with a situation where neither party is able to bring in any covert material. One of the things I
0: wondered is whether, in fact, the experts themselves would have the right to have this excluded on the basis of perhaps they had a right to privacy or some other basis a distinct basis from any rationale that their instructing solicitors may have. So the defendant's solicitors may have their own objections but maybe the defendant's experts could have objected it on a personal level on the basis that they had an entitlement and expectation of privacy in the examination room and that was violated by the covert recording.
1: I think that's right they they took a a point along those lines by trying to say that They should perhaps, based on some advice from their governing bodies, be having a term in their contract that no recordings were going to take place. But the master fairly made the point that any contract is going to be be between the expert and the instructing party. So that would not bind a third-party claimant who is being examined who is not going to be party to that contract.
0: One of the issues that the judge, or the principal issue the judge, seems to have wrestled with in this particular instance was that he's trying to balance on the one hand what may be covertly and improperly obtained material as against the probative value of that material. So it's a bit like, in criminal cases, the prejudicial effect versus probative value, and that's a difficult balancing exercise to to run in circumstances where the evidence exists,
1: it's potentially relevant, but it's been obtained in ways which the court may not approve of. And the court harked back to some of the cases in the early days of the CPR, didn't it? Because it looked at cases like Jones and Warwick, where that was concerned with covert surveillance by a defendant, and the court was highly critical of the circumstance in which it was carried out, which might arguably have been unlawful, but said nevertheless the probative value is such that the material should be allowed in. and I think the masters here seemed to give some credence, didn't he, to the suggestion that there were it was appropriate to be quite critical of the way in which some of these recordings were created, but nevertheless was prepared to let them in. judge was extraordinarily critical of the claimant in terms of what she
0: did to um, covertly record uh, these examinations.
1: But in the light of that, why,
0: why did he allow it in? Well, it seems the judge formed the view that... Um, the material was not unlawful, uh, it did not breach any uh, Article 8 rights or other rights that the experts may have. It was admissible and probative, and ultimately the judge formed a view that the covert nature of the recording ought not of itself to disentitle this. But the claimant had, perhaps quite cleverly one might think, managed to obtain a supplemental report or a letter from their expert to say that this material, um, particularly in relation to Dr. Torrens, was material because it indicated that the examination had not been carried out correctly or properly or in some way in accordance with the appropriate guidelines. So once that issue had been raised and that matter was something that had to be decided by the judge, it meant that the court would have to be satisfied that there was some very strong reason not to permit it to be um, relied upon in those circumstances, because as the judge said, rather adopting a cliche, that once a G's out of the bottle, you can't put it back in.
1: Yes, and did the master have a look at the more wide point about what should be done in other cases, because this has ramifications across injury litigation, doesn't it? Well, this is, as I
0: think is the first case in which a judge, particularly a high court judge, has indicated that... Uh, He thinks that the recording of medical legal reports should be a matter of course, something that is done in every instance and has strongly suggested that those who are responsible for claimant litigation and defendant litigation get together, draw up a set of rules and guidelines, and this is done in every instance, or at least most instances, to avoid this particular type of problem whereby covert surveillance or covert recordings are made. And I can see that there's a lot of force in that because what happens next time I mean, these experts will now be aware of the fact that they may be covertly recorded. Covert, covert recording devices are very small. Do they automatically assume that every single examination they undertake is being covertly recorded? Do they record them all themselves just in case? Once, going back to what the judge said, once the genie is out of the bottle, what do you do? You have to either make rules that it can't be done at all, or you have to make rules that it is allowed. What you can't have, it seems to me, and I think the judge is right,
1: is a ad hoc approach, whereby... If it's done, then we have these hearings, and if it isn't done, then we don't. But it's not a one-way street, is it? There are some legitimate concerns to be had about recordings and potential pitfalls in relation to this, I would have thought, and I can see the sort of indications being given by the experts in this case being replicated by other experts, wouldn't they? And, And the concerns that if you start having recordings, then it puts people on a defensive footing, where, albeit this is not a doctor and patient relationship in the normal sense, particularly in circumstances where someone is investigating something like a brain injury where you need to take a detailed history and when you get under the skin of the case and, and the person you're talking to and examining, if there's a reticence there by expert or claimant, that that process is going to be a less than satisfactory one. Do you see a, there being downsides here?
0: Well, undoubtedly there'll be downsides because um, one of the objections taken by the expert in this instance, is that they felt, well, maybe violated is too strong a word, but
1: they certainly felt that the... the I think that's the word that was used, wasn't it?
0: Yes, well, I I thought it was quite a a strong phrase in the context, but obviously I wasn't the one being covertly recorded. But the situation at the moment, therefore, is in this particular instance, uh, in the Mustard case, is that she now has a recording of the examination, which is before the judge, and which can be considered and poured over if need be, to see to what extent the expert's findings and the expert's examination marry up. But another claimant who doesn't do this, who may well have legitimate concerns, then doesn't have that benefit. So at the moment, the problem is that we have a situation which claimants who covertly record examinations, which the judge was very
1: critical of, in fact deprecated what she'd done, are in a slightly better evidential position than those who do not. And the defendant also made an Im- interesting level playing field argument didn't it because it said it had invited the claimant to record the examinations with her own experts but she had declined to do so they of course had no ability to compel her to do so but they were saying well in that situation they are disadvantaged because they can't do the same cross-check against the reports produced by the claimant's experts to see if those faithfully record what she actually said and the master looked at this from the angle that That was a theoretical concern but because they weren't able to identify any particular point in the subsequently disclosed reports which would give rise to the need to examine transcripts they couldn't actually make good on that point. But uh, they had a point there didn't they that if this is going to be done by one side it probably should be done by all sides in a particular dispute or it shouldn't be done at all.
0: Yes I wasn't uh, wholly convinced by the Uh, Judge's rationale in that instance. The level playing field exists as a theoretical entity, of course, but um, because the defendant can't point explicitly to uh, issues or problems within the claimant's examination, that doesn't appear to me to neutralise that particular point because the defendant is not in a position to challenge the claimant's examination by her own experts because they aren't part of it and they're relying upon the claimant's account. But the level playing field argument works both ways, isn't it? Because in addition to saying, well, neither side should have recordings, is equally to say, well, both sides should have recordings. And that brings on to the broader point that the judge has made. Should recordings be made as a matter of course? And is that a good thing?
1: What about the impact on costs? We're in a a regime where... The pressure on costs is very significant and budgets are set at the outset, at which point it may not be clear whether whatever protocol is brought into effect will need to be implemented if you're at a very early stage of litigation. That was one of the concerns raised, wasn't it, that this would, if people routinely have to pore over transcripts and extend cross-examination to look at what was and wasn't said, that that's going to make the costs in these cases potentially disproportionate and unreasonable.
0: Well, I think that is... Um, a potential concern but I wonder if that can be addressed by doing it on a case-by-case basis within the course of costs, budgeting and case management because ultimately in order for either party to justify listening and perhaps transcribing the entirety of of an examination, and let's face it, most examinations are less than an hour, they would clearly need to have some basis for doing so. It would not presumably be recoverable or or reasonable to simply listen to the recordings on the off chance that something might emerge. Either the claimant or defendant would have to have some reason to say that they needed to check the recording as against what's set out in the report. And if they don't have a good reason, then they shouldn't recover the cost of it. So I'm not sure that that is necessarily um, the... Floodgates to huge uh, cost building that, that perhaps some have thought.
1: A different angle on this is the concern about child claimants and those who may arguably be protected parties. Do you think that the court is going to have to, or any protocol that is put together by the representatives on both sides of the the field, it's going to have to apply different rules to those situations?
0: Well, it's all going to turn on, isn't it? On on the ultimate rationale behind why these recordings should be made. These recordings seem to be rare, at least as far as I can tell, but seem to be generated by concerns by mainly claimant solicitors that the um, report will not accurately reflect what's said within the examination. That, on one view, is very unfair to defendant experts who um, are therefore faced with an enhanced degree of scrutiny that the claimant's experts don't have. So I wonder whether, in considering... What you do about adults and children, whether the first thing to do is to understand whether, if a rule comes in, what the purpose of the rule is, why we are recording medical legal reports as a matter of course. What's the ultimate purpose? Once we identify that, then I think we can then identify whether child claimants or uh, adults under disability either should be expressly included or expressly excluded.
1: And in terms of directions, this is something you touched on earlier, but it's going to need to be addressed in advance, isn't it? Ideally at the CCMC stage, so that there can be a specific ruling by the court on what's going to happen in the absence of some sort of formal protocol which applies to all cases, and we await that as yet. It's going to need to be addressed in advance, isn't it? So that both directions can be put in place for how the, covert, for how the recording is going to be done, so it's not covert, it's out in the open objections can be raised if appropriate at that stage to particular parts of examinations and some sort of ground rules put in place and the costs of all of this can be budgeted for as well. Well, if you put your
0: judicial hat on for a moment, or judicial wig perhaps, um, if a hearing comes up tomorrow and both sides ask you to order that the examinations by all experts be the subject of overt recording, do you think you can make that order? Would you be consider making that order? Or is there it would be a reason why you would not make that order in principle?
1: I don't think the court has the power to order that it happens, but it maybe has the power to order that it doesn't happen. So that's the way I would view it, That the, the moment, in the absence of some sort of practice guidance or protocol. It's case by case, as you say, and it's uh, more a case of either dealing with the aftermath, as is often the, the present situation where recordings have happened, And are you going to try and put the genie back in the bottle or not? Or the situation where a party is asking prospectively for an order saying this should or should not happen? I think we can probably say that um, whatever happens in the future, this issue isn't going to
0: go away. And ultimately, um, the suggestion by Master Davison is either going to have to be taken up or we're going to have more fights like this. I've got a lot more uh, ret- letters written in angry and significant terms uh, arguing that uh, these covert recordings should not be admissible and inviting the court to strike them out on the basis that uh, they are an unjustifiable intrusion into the experts' privacy. Oh,
1: I completely agree. There's plenty more mileage in these points and certainly the judgment answers, answers some questions in that case, but it poses many other questions for future cases. That concludes this Hardwick podcast on the topic of the
0: covert recording of experts arising from the decision of Master Davison and mustard and Flower. We hope you found it interesting and useful. You might like to subscribe to our podcast series by way of Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast medium you use. And you can also find out more information on the Hardwick website, hardwick.co.uk. Thank you for listening and goodbye.
1: Hardwick is a barrister's chambers which specialises in legal advice and advocacy In the areas of clinical negligence and personal injury, commercial dispute resolution, construction, insolvency, insurance, private client, professional liability and property. This podcast is provided free of charge for information purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied on as such. No responsibility for the accuracy and or correctness of the information and commentary or any consequences of relying on it, is assumed or accepted by any member of Hardwick or by Hardwick as a whole.